We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Our scripture reading today is found in Ezekiel 42. We set Ezekiel aside uh, briefly last week so we could look at some truths, important truths about Christian baptism. But we return to our series reading in the Old Testament prophets, reading the whole Bible, in fact. Started in 2008, reading Romans, and uh, we're getting close to having completed the whole of the scriptures. So we have a little more to go here. We've uh, read a few difficult uh, chapters with regard to this temple, millennial temple, that is going to be constructed after the tribulation, and it's quite a, quite a structure. It's hard to understand by words, and uh, I know I've shown you folks the pictures of the uh, artist renditions of it before. I don't have those handy with me right now to uh, take us through this, but it would kind of be neat to have somebody do a 3D model of this uh, on the computer and have a kind of um, tour as this is read where different parts are pointed out. That would be a huge project, but it would be very fascinating to see the result of that kind of work. Verse, uh, chapter, one, uh, uh, chapter 42, sorry, verse 1. Chapter 42, verse 1. Then he brought me out into the outer court by the way toward the north, and he brought me into the chamber which was opposite the separating courtyard and which was opposite the building toward the north. Facing the length, which was 100 cubits, the width was 50 cubits, was the north door. Opposite the inner court of 20 cubits and opposite the pavement of the outer court was gallery against gallery in three stories. In front of the chambers toward the inside was a walk 10 cubits wide at a distance of one cubit, and their doors faced north. Now, the upper chambers were shorter because the galleries took away space from them more than from the lower and middle stories of the building for they were in the three stories and did not have pillars like the pillars of the courts. Therefore, the upper level was shortened more than the lower and middle levels from the ground up. And a wall which was outside ran parallel to the chambers at the front of the chambers toward the outer court. Its length was 50 cubits. The length of the chambers toward the outer court was 50 cubits, whereas that facing the temple was 100 cubits. Very interesting kind of structure there. At the lower chambers was the entrance on the east side as one goes into them from the outer court. And there were chambers in the thickness of the wall of the court toward the east, opposite the separating courtyard and opposite the building. There was a walk in front of them also, and their appearance was like the chambers which were toward the north. They were as long and as wide as the others, and all their exits and entrances were according to plan." And corresponding to the doors of the chambers that were facing south, as one enters them, there was a door in front of the walk, the way directly in front of the wall toward the east. Then he said to me, the north chambers and the south chambers, which are opposite the separating courtyard, are the holy chambers where the priests 
who approach the Lord shall eat the most holy offerings. There they shall lay the most holy offerings, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering, for the place is holy. When the priests enter them, they shall not go out of the holy chamber into the outer court, but there they shall leave their garments in which they minister, for they are holy. They shall put on other garments, then they may approach that which is for the people. Now, when he had finished measuring the inner temple, he brought me out through the gateway that faces toward the east and measured it all around. He measured the east side with the measuring rod, 500 rods by the measuring rod all around. Let me pause there and ask you, do you have any idea what that means? 500 rods. It's about one mile. One mile. He measured the north side 500 rods by the measuring rod all around. He measured the south side 500 rods by the measuring rod. He came around to the west side and measured 500 rods by the measuring rod. Okay, so we read this in the space of like 10 seconds, but if this was done by any normal traversal of the man with the angel, it took quite a long while for these measurements to be made and for this to sink in to Ezekiel, that he's looking at a temple structure which is one mile square and all the stuff that we've seen described inside of there. He measured it on the four sides. It had a wall all around, 500 cubits long and 500 wide to separate the holy areas from the common. So this wall is to set off the place of worship during the millennial kingdom from the common areas, which is where anybody could go without any regard for the cleanliness and ceremonial issues and and all of that sort of thing, but uh, one mile. Now, that would not fit on the current site of the Temple Mount. It would not fit on what we know from ancient history as Mount Moriah. So what's going to happen for that to occur is that there's going to have to be a major topographical change to that area. And we learn of that elsewhere in uh, Zechariah and maybe Revelation as well, where there's a great earthquake. And I think that earthquake will do some re, uh, well, we call it terraforming in a new modern way of speaking, uh, reform the, the uh, top, topography so that this will be possible. But this is the size the scope of this millennial temple. Now, we're going to look uh, as we come uh, to the next chapters at some more difficult topics regarding what happens in this temple and what are these offerings and things like that. And I think it will be uh, difficult but interesting nonetheless. So hopefully, anyway, for you, that will be the case. Ezekiel 42. I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me, please, to the book of Jonah. I want you to be able to see what I'm looking at here. That's one of the emphases of a Bible church, that we are looking at the scriptures, the words of the living God, not Matt Postiff's words, Amen. although I have written quite a few words to try to elucidate my understanding of what Jonah chapter 3 now is about today. Imagine somebody coming into the city of Ann Arbor or one of its current residents becoming a herald, town crier, walking through the main thoroughfares of town and proclaiming that in 
some number of days, Ann Arbor would be destroyed. And then further imagine that the people of the city, even up to its mayor, recognized their wicked ways and humbled themselves and repented before God, gave the culturally acceptable signs of repentance like they did in Jonah's day, and believed God and repented of their wicked ways. Do you think it's possible? No, not with Ann Arbor. God's not big enough for that. It's too much, you know. Listen to to Jonah, rather, Jonah chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said to it, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God. Shock. Proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said that he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, we uh, are going to be getting closer to the core message of the book of Jonah. It was not primarily written as an illustration of Jesus' death and resurrection, although it's used that way. It's not actually written primarily about the Ninevites. It has something to do with Jonah and his understanding of God. I think I tried to elicit a little bit of the tension of the message of the book by illustrating with our own city. I mean, there are people far away from here who think that we live in a very bad place. You know, they think their cities are better than ours. Maybe, maybe not. But people look at this place, and we might ourselves look at this place, and we might say, impossible. Jonah said, impossible. In fact, we'll find out in chapter 4 that he became angry at God for what happened. Chapter 3 shows the sovereignty of God in all things. We've already been looking at that in chapter 1. We saw it in chapter 2. And now we're going to see it in the matter of repentance. And even, dare I say, for some of these people, salvation out of a wicked city. This is our God. This is our God, my friends. 
In chapter 1 and 2, we saw the repentance of Jonah. We, we saw him, you know, sin and leave God behind and try to run away from him, which was a fool's errand to be sure. But he tried to do it, and he found out that he can't run far enough or fast enough to get away from the omnipresent God. But then when he's on the boat, he says, look, I know this storm is because of me. Throw me overboard. You see his repentance in his prayer in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Uh, God responded to that by having him spit up onto the shore, as it were, and onto the dry land. But in chapter 3, we're going to see two more repentances. We saw Jonah's already. We actually see the fruit of his repentance in the beginning of chapter 3. But we're going to see the repentance of Nineveh, and we're going to see an interesting, quote, repentance of God. I'll show you what that means in just a moment. Jonah, first of all, had a second chance. I want you, when you look at this, when it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, I want you to marvel at the word a second time. The Lord basically repeats his call to Jonah from chapter 1. Remember chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, he called to Jonah. He said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Here in chapter 3, God tells Jonah again to go and preach the message. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Now, he doesn't repeat why, because the wickedness is great, but that's understood. We know that. We don't have to repeat everything, but he gives them basically the same message. He tells Jonah to preach to them his message. We have no reason now to believe that Jonah diverted from this instruction. He's already learned his lesson, hasn't he? Do what God has told you to do. Don't disobey God. And, and rightly so, because the God speaking to him is the sovereign ruler of the universe. He's just proven that by sending the storm, the fish, saving Jonah and getting Jonah's attention by all of that to bring him to the place where he would obey him. And it should be so for every preacher of God's word that we preach the message just as he's told it to us. We deliver it faithfully. It's his word, not our word, that's important. But when I said to you a moment ago to marvel at the word second, to marvel at the idea of the second time, Note that God was not obligated to give Jonah a second chance. It is a mercy that he did so. God doesn't have to. He's not obligated to you. But although this was a mercy that he did so to Jonah, it is a characteristic kind of mercy of our God. It's a mercy It doesn't teach us that it's okay to be disobedient the first time around. Oh, you can get away with it a few times. It doesn't teach us that. But it does teach us, not to presume on God's grace, but it does teach us about His grace, that after your earthen vessel has been crushed, Jeremiah 18, God can remake it. You've made a mess of your life, maybe, You have, you did. You think back on that. You think of how horrible you behaved toward God, toward others. God is, 
as some have said, the God of the second chance. He called Jonah a second time. I thank God for that. I hope you thank God for that as well. We all need a, a second chance, as it were, because we, we mess up the first time, and the second time, and the third time. You get the point. God's grace is that way, and we thank him for that. Note a contrast in Jonah's response. God called to him, and the first time it says what? God said, go to Nineveh. He got up and he went to Tarshish. This time, what does it say? Arise, go to Nineveh, and then verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Good idea. According to the word of the Lord. Jonah did not. You see, not only is there often God, God, as long as really God has given you breath, you have the second chance, as it were. But not only does he give you that, but here in this instance, Jonah demonstrates how to not waste that second opportunity grace that God gives. When you come to your senses and you realize God is extending still his grace toward me, here's how you take advantage of it and you obey and listen to what God has said. Now, God may well have used the fish experience to emphasize Jonah's message, um, maybe, I, I didn't think of this ahead of time, but maybe somebody could, could, um, could think of a, a, an illustration. Take the Ann Arbor illustration I used before about the messenger coming to the city or rising out of the midst of the city and becoming a town crier. But think of something that could have happened to that person before they did that. Let's suppose that there was uh, an airplane that was flying over um, southeastern Michigan, and the roof, the top of that airplane, ripped off. That has happened before, hasn't it? Remember the Hawaiian uh, accident where that happened? One of the flight stewardesses was sucked out. I don't even know, know if they ever found her. That could happen. If somebody fell out of an airplane, was sucked out of an airplane, and came from 35,000 feet down to the ground and survived. And then that person came in to the city, and everybody knew it. This person was on the news. It was proven that they were on the airplane. Eyewitnesses saw them come out of the sky and land in whatever trees or uh, you know lake they landed in or whatever, and they survived. And maybe they had to recover from some injuries, and then they said, you know what? God has a message for you. Maybe you would listen to that person? Not here. I mean, we're too hardened for that, right? Um, this is what happened with Jonah. He perhaps was discolored or disfigured from his ordeal. The news of what he survived would have traversed that part, part of the ancient world and alerted those who interacted with Jonah that he was a representative of the God of heaven, and not even he could escape the message that God had for him to deliver. This God was the one who made the sea and the dry land, and he was the one who was sending Jonah. Verse 3, we read, actually twice we read about Nineveh being a great city. Uh, verse 2 says that, and verse 3 says that. It's an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in extent. Now I noticed, and I think I have a footnote to this effect, if you have an older New International Version, you're going to see the translation there. It says Nineveh was an important city. The point of this passage is 
and what I'm going to contend is those translators got that wrong. The point of this is not to say this was a city more important than other cities, that its residents were more important, that it was a, like particularly of interest to God in that sense of, you know, notable. It was, all the text is saying it was great in extent. And the translators, I think, kind of stumbled in their desire to take the, Greek, the Hebrew words, the, the word gadol, which means great, and the exceeding greatness of it, and they tried to put an interpretive spin on it for their readers. The newer NIV has undone that, and they just now say that it was a, a large city. So they've made that correction. So kudos to them, as it were, for doing that. It's not more particularly important than, say, Babylon was at the time. Of course, it's a prominent city, but the greatness means the size of it and the number of inhabitants of it. Uh, it was a three-day journey, uh, it says, and it's not clear if this was three days across or three days around, okay? But I, I think the around, the quote-unquote circumference is more likely, but it matters little to the point of the passage, so there's no reason for us to get hung up on that detail. One historian said that the distance around Nineveh was 60 miles. And you think, wow, that's a huge place if you think of it. But illustrate in your mind with a square centered around our city of Ann Arbor and surrounding Dexter, Saline, and Ypsilanti. A square of about 14 miles on a side would cover that area and more. I mean, you know, you'd have some of the stuff in Superior Township and the Northeast and you'd have some stuff to the West and South between Saline and Milan or whatever, 14 miles on a side. Multiply that out. I think you'll find somewhere near 200 square miles. Uh, you know your times tables up to 14 by 14, anybody? <laughs> um, the circumference of that, 14, 14, 44, 56 miles. Now you imagine you're sent to this area and God says to you, traverse this greater Ann Arbor area and you tell them about this message that God has for them. How long would it take you to walk 56 miles? Well, I mean, it would take me a while, and I've got longer legs than average. Uh, so say it takes three days to do that. Well, there it is, three days. Can you put that in your mind? Now, how many residents are in that square, 14-mile square? I did a little bit of work on that, and I don't have an, a great number, but it's somewhere at least like 160,000 souls in that area. I think in, in Washtenaw County, totally, there's 300 and some thousand and change of people. So say it's 160, say about half of the population of the, the county in this area. That's what we're talking about. If you look at chapter 4, verse 11, uh, it says, uh, God says, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? Now, we'll come to what that means. It may be that there's 120,000 young people there. It may be there's 120,000 clueless people there, uh, morally clueless. But in any case, it's a lot of people. A lot of people. Now, verse 4, then, we carry on to the next segment of the notes, Roman numeral 2, Jonah's preaching. Very simple. Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Some ancient translations put three days, and they make it, so it makes it even more urgent, like three days from now, you're goners. Um, and this is, of course, a very unpleasant kind of message. 
Um, not a very encouraging message of the sort that the world wants. You know, people today, what they want, they want advice, but don't judge me. Well, what if your conduct that's causing you problems requires a moral judgment? And that might be why you have a problem, that you're not properly estimating the behavior that you're doing. So anyway, he became that town crier and said that in 40 days, Nineveh would be overthrown. Uh, He did not specify the method, uh, how it would happen, uh, nor did he mention the reason for it. He did not mention God uh, or the reason or the opportunity to repent even from it. He just said, God's going to overthrow this city. He's going to destroy it. Now, we know the reason because they were wicked. We know that God, from reading on in the chapter, has at least provisionally planned to, uh, to give some type of disaster to them. And I say provisionally because we'll see what happens here. Now, we know that from God's self-disclosure in the scriptures and from our experience that God is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's love, he's holy, he's infinite, he's gracious, he's compassionate, he's kind, he's good in every way possible, he's great in every way possible. And because of this perfect combination of attributes that we can be sure that there's no better thing than the justice that God delivers when it's due, when it's necessary. So it's, it's a little bit abrupt, perhaps, for somebody to walk into your city, in Nineveh, and say, look, you're about to be destroyed. Now, if it's true, well, you know, great. If Vesuvius is about to blow her lid, it's probably better for me to leave, to do something about that impending doom. So thank God for his announcements of impending judgment. But we also know that whatever he does in judgment must be decent because God is decent. It's right because God is holy. We know from the entire historical account of Jonah that God had some other plans than just this judgment. To implement those plans, he sent Jonah and had him preach a message of judgment, and then he kindly permitted the Ninevites to turn from their wicked ways and withheld the judgment that had been formally promised if they did not repent. This is how God's compassion works in judgment. In other words, somebody might say, that is not very encouraging preaching, Jonah. You shouldn't be telling us these things that don't want to hear about it. But in fact, it was very compassionate that God sent Jonah to give them the message of impending judgment because that gave them the opportunity to do what pleases God, which is what? Repent of their sin. And so you see that something that you look at from this angle and say, that's awful, that's not inspirational, Pastor. That's, that the, I'm leaving this place. I can't stand hearing that stuff. Or you look at it from God's angle and say, look at that warning message was, you know, there's a fence here. And if you go over the fence, you're going to go over the cliff and die. It looks awfully different when you look at it from that perspective. So uh, he's preaching this message, this kind of unpleasant-sounding message, but God is using it as a vehicle of mercy. Now, we don't read in Jonah here any words to the effect of, you know, you'll be destroyed unless you repent. And some people have made a big deal about that, and then they look at the rest of it and say, oh, well, God changed his mind, God is fickle, God is whatever. Um, You know, God is not obligated to tell you everything he's thinking, 
and all of his intentions ahead of time. And he doesn't, because he wanted to make this announcement of judgment very straightforward, very serious. Now, it may be that Jonah added uh, these other words. We don't know the full content of it. Uh, I mean, it's hard for me to imagine him just going around saying, God will destroy, I mean, he wouldn't even say God. He said 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And just keeps repeating that over and over. Um, get a little repetitious, but at least we know that he did say that. But we don't have to get all excited about this because within the same paragraph, within 10 verses, the Bible tells us what God's intention was. In fact, God most often does offer people an opportunity to repent. Now, I said that carefully. He most often does offer people an opportunity to repent. Now, there may not be an opportunity for you to rid yourself of some of the unpleasant consequences of the sins that you've done. True. But God will forgive you nonetheless if one truly repents. I saw, did I say this illustration before? I heard it recently. I can't remember where. Father illustrating to his son about sin. To do that, he drives some nails into the doorpost in their barn. Those nails represent sin. Then he pulls the nails out one by one, and he says, this represents God taking away the sin. And the boy observed. He said, Dad, but there's still nail holes. The sin has left a mark. The sin left marks on Jesus, too, by nails. And in that, God offers salvation to his people. Now, I have a little caveat in my notes here because I said most often God offers the opportunity to repent. But there are times when it is simply too late. Jeremiah 7, 16 and eleven fourteen. I won't ask you to turn there, but in almost shocking words, God says to Jeremiah, do not pray for this people. Do not pray for this people. <laughs> we don't pray for people because we forget to pray for them or we don't care to pray for them or too lazy to pray for them. He says to Jeremiah, don't pray for them. It's, it's, it's over. I'm sending them off to Babylon. So that's true. And in fact, at the end of time, when the... Angels reap the harvest of the earth and throw them into the winepress of the wrath of God. The time is over. Yes. But, of course, before that, he harvests those who belong to him. But notice the normal operational stance of God toward the world. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? That's God's stance. You know, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Notice it says, punishment for sinners, part of which is death, is a very unpleasant business, and God feels the same way. It's ugly, but it's a necessity if holiness is to live up to its name as, in fact, holiness. The Ninevites were soon to experience the consequences of their wicked ways. That's what Jonah was presenting to them. But then something happened that was a shock to Jonah, and if we were reading this for the first time, would be to us. In fact, 
It would be far more shocking if we knew the wickedness of the Ninevites. Remember how I mentioned that, what, two weeks ago, three weeks ago now? Whatever it was. The wicked things that they did, the cruel and unusual punishments, the idolatry, the evil was beyond belief. We think our times are bad. They're bad, and they can get worse. But there was some really bad stuff going on here. And so with all of that in the background, nobody would expect Nineveh, Ann Arbor, to repent of their sin. In an amazing turn of events, notice what it says in verse 5. So the people of Nineveh, what you would expect is they threw Jonah out and stoned him to death. Nope, they believed God. They believed God. Can you believe it? They believed him. I guess we'd better believe it because Scripture says so. They believed in God. The channel by which they believed was God's word. So they believed God in virtue of believing his word. That's how we believe God and believe in God today. Notice that there's not a harsh line of distinction between the word of God and God himself. Obviously, they are distinct. God is different than his word. But if you believe God, you'll believe his word. If you believe his word truly, then you'll believe in the one from whence it came. And so you'll believe both God and his word. Yes, and what I'm saying is we believe in the divine person as well as his message. But genuinely believing in one implies the other. Now, how did the Ninevites know about God? They were polytheistic idolaters. Uh, They were wicked. So Jonah, did he have a theology class? No. Did he make some long-winded explanation? No, it doesn't appear so. But they were facing an hour of desperation. It's an interesting thing that people who don't believe in God start to believe in God when the bullets start flying, when the foxhole becomes the necessity when there's an hour of desperation that comes upon one, oh, God, help me. If you don't believe in God, don't ask God to help you. But they do believe in God. That's the reality. Romans 1 says, from the beginning of the creation, God's attributes have been clearly seen. They know God. They know God. And so a way of, an hour of desperation has an interesting way of clarifying people's thinking into what is real rather than what's imaginary. The, the polytheistic deities are imaginary. They're made up. Now, they may be ener- exercised or energized by demons, but they are, in effect, made-up things. The Ninevites, like all humans, had b- built-in basic knowledge of God from Romans 1, 19 and 20. They were without excuse, and that became more clear. Can it be, could I say it became clarified to them when they faced destruction. Now, they manifested belief by doing something about what they were hearing. They used the customary method of expressing their repentance. How did they do that? They proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the, least, or from the greatest to the least of them. The king sat in ashes. Now, we might criticize them and say, well, that's superstitious. They're just covering their bases, you know, uh, taking Pascal's wager. Well, we better be careful about this. He might be right. 
but the text doesn't say it that way. Even if it were true, it would be a good response for the city, wouldn't it, if they stopped their evil ways, even if it were for a superstitious reason? It would make it better for their victims, better for the city and its inhabitants and the state, city-states surrounding them. Even the king of Nineveh got involved in verse 6, 7, 8, 9. God induced the heart of the king to move in a good direction. You know that verse in Proverbs 21, don't you? The king's heart is in the hand of God, and he moves it wherever he wishes. He did that with the king of Nineveh. I don't know exactly which king this was, but he did it with the king of Babylon. He called him my servant. He did that with Cyrus, the Medo-Persian, called him my servant. The leaders of the world are ultimately the servants of God, even if they hate God. They are that way. So he arrayed himself in sackcloth. He sat in ashes. He went so far as to make a proclamation. It kind of reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar's proclamation in Daniel 4 where he writes to all of the nations or regions under his control and and extols the God of heaven who had humbled him, put him into a field of grass eating like an ox or a cattle, a cow, and, and he was crazy for those times. And then he came back to his senses. So the king made a proclamation to the entire city to focus a period of time on repentance. And the people listened to the king. Of course, you would listen to the king. In 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 Assyria, if the king said something, you would do it. Why? Because if you didn't, you'd probably be pulled limb from limb and sliced in pieces. Sorry to have to be so graphic. God is a great king, my friends. Greater than the king of Assyria. Well, you can read what he told them to do. I won't have to go over all of that again, but The main idea is if we turn from our evil and violent ways and pray, perhaps God will turn from his fierce anger. And I believe that it's always the case when God calls people to repent, he's not talking about just repenting from your external or exterior actions. He's talking about the attitudes in your mind. What happened with Assyria later on when in Isaiah 38 you read that the king of Assyria came against Hezekiah. Remember some of the things that he said in abusing Hezekiah and the people of Israel and telling them what they're going to do and what he's going to do to them. And he said, have any of the gods been able to save their peoples? We are the Assyrians. Nobody comes against us. Nobody is victorious. See, they had an attitude of superiority because of what God had permitted them to do instead of humility. Instead of using that to serve humanity, they used it to serve themselves. And so they said, you know, I think in their minds we need to turn away from these things that are driving us to do these external actions. If we repent and change our minds like that, then perhaps God will turn from his fierce anger. Good idea. What other method do you think would work better? Now, how real was this repentance? Some have said it was kind of a... Oh, a regret. Uh, I take it that it was genuine for the time being, although it obviously did not last for many decades afterwards. I think some were truly saved, some were not, temporarily repentant perhaps. What I, what I um, cannot do here is not take the words at face value. It says they believed God, they turned from their sin, they made some major... I mean, 
you would think, Jonah goes into the city, he says, the city's going to be destroyed. They say, what a nut. He needs to be committed, you know. Uh, and they just ignore the whole thing. They didn't ignore the whole thing. They did something very serious. They fasted. They prayed. They believed God. It seems real enough to me to make some difference anyway. The reality, of course, would be shown in the permanency of the fruit. It's like when somebody makes a profession of salvation, you don't necessarily, you, you watch for fruit is what I would say. You don't just sit there and say, oh, good, that's all done. Don't have to worry about them anymore. Never. You have to observe the fruit and see the reality of it. But uh, the, the future um, generations didn't follow in the footsteps of these ones because I cannot repent for the generations that come after me. They must repent and believe themselves. So God changed direction, verse number 10. And we'll close with this this morning. God saw their works. Their works were not what caused them to be saved from God's judgment, okay? What were their works? Their works were evidence that they had repented, and that repentance is what pleased God. Uh, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but what they do, they turn from their wicked ways. And that turning and believing in God is the channel through which he received or gave them that blessing. God relented from the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Okay, again, his stance normally, many chances for us to repent and turn to him. Uh, so in addition to the fact that the, there seems to be evidence that they did truly repent based on their behavior, I think the other piece of evidence that indicates that their repentance was sufficient was that God changed his activity toward them. God estimated it to be a good repentance, something legit, valid. They turned from their evil way, their works were different, the world was a better place for it. Then he too repented, quotes, of what he was going to do to them. He was not repenting from sin, obviously. He, he turned from option one to option two. What was option one? They're, they're not going to repent, I'm going to destroy them. To option two, they repent, I won't destroy them. Easy. He moved from a stance of impending judgment to a stance of mercy. Exodus 32 gives an example of this. The children of Israel have just made a golden calf. You know, it just popped out of the, right, Aaron? Uh, just happened to come out this way. What a miracle. Um, and uh, Moses is told by God, go down the people. They've, they've corrupted themselves and all of this and, uh, idolatry, and, and Moses prays and, and asks God to forgive them, and it says that God relented of what he had planned to do to them in destroying them. Remember, he said, I'll make, I'll make of you, Moses, a, a, a nation. Moses asked God to re, re, uh, relent of that disaster. Now, on what grounds did God do this? Relenting. I believe that the basis upon which God shows mercy for sin at any time, in any place in history, is the work of Jesus Christ. That is all that there is to ameliorate the problem of sin, both before and after the cross. In times past, Acts 17 tells us, God overlooked the sinful ignorance of humanity. Why? Why? Because he was looking forward 
if you will, if God looks forward, God sees everything simultaneously, but you understand what I mean. He saw the cross, he knew the cross was planned from before the foundation of the world, and it would be uh, come to pass. And so he overlooked this times of sinful ignorance of humanity. That ignorance and sin was culpable, it was worthy of punishment, just like any other sin, but God patiently held off in dealing with that in the lives of these people. This is pure mercy, my friends. Mercy on the basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think of how patient God was. You and I lose our patience after about five minutes. Okay, five days, five months. God continued to bear patiently with the human race for thousands of years. It was punctuated with some times of judgment, you know, the flood and different localized judgments and things. He allowed people to go their own way. And for the years of your life, before and, if you're a Christian, after salvation, God has been patient with you also. Whether you trust God now or not, the fact is that he has been patient with you. You've exhibited pride and anger and lust and greed, and idolatry, or you've used God's name in vain, or other things like that. Those are universal wrongs. Yet God has not yet rewarded you, rewarded you according to your works, has he? If he were to reward you according to your works, where would you be? Now sometimes God changes course in the other direction. He goes from option two to option one. <laughs> okay? And in Genesis 6, he said he saw the intentions of man's heart were only evil continually. He said, it, it's, it's a sad thing that I've made humanity and look at the condition. And so he says, I'm going to destroy them. And he had Noah build the ark. And you know that whole account of how human and humanity was saved and the air-breathing animals and all of that. God hates sinfulness. So sometimes he goes the other direction. God Used Babylon to judge Israel, then he judged Babylon. God took the kingdom away from Saul and gave it to David after he had initially given it to Saul. God always intended to respond in the way that Jonah shows us to Nineveh at the time because he had greater purposes in mind. It wasn't just like, oh, whoops, I didn't plan on them. You know, I thought they were like Ann Arbor. They would never repent. So, you know, like God has plan B. No, he doesn't. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He always intended to respond this way to the Ninevites by giving them mercy because he has a better purpose, a bigger, rather, purpose in it, in this story. But therefore, when we're looking at this, one of the applications for me is, you know, at some point, option two is going to change to option one. Time will run out. God will say, don't pray for these people. It's done. That means today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Because a day is coming when every person will be told by God that enough is enough. Years and decades of opportunity to recognize our need of God's forgiveness will come to an end. Be assured that if you repent, you will find, as the Ninevites did, that God is compassionate and gracious. He's not mean whatsoever. He's very kind, very patient. 
And here we are getting closer to the message of Jonah that has to do with the sovereignty of God and his care over humanity and our attitude toward those people that we think are so awful they're unsavable. The repentance of Nineveh happened in those individuals alive at the time, but it didn't transfer to those future generations and uh, certainly hasn't filtered down to our generation. We have to preach again the message of repentance because God will destroy people who reject him. And uh, sad, unpleasant, difficult as it is, that's what God has told us to say in summary, and we just have to keep on saying that and reminding ourselves that there are consequences for being bad. Yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to recognize uh, what you're getting at with the book of Jonah, and thank you, Lord, for the manifestation of your patience toward a wicked people that reminds us so much of ourselves and how long-suffering you've been with us. Thank you for your kindness and long-suffering, and in the gospel, thank you for those holes left by the nails that remind us of the work of Christ for us to save us from our sin. May we be close to him and to you. In Jesus' name, amen.